Pod here. Today I'm joined by Becky Morrison. Becky is a very experienced corporate leader, having worked in the US, in Australia, New Zealand, in the UK, and in the Nordics, and is about to head over to Copenhagen to take on an executive global position in a few weeks' time. We discuss what is it like taking on the role of a country leader for the first time, and why the leader needs to be comfortable in their own skin in that role. We also look at why culture change takes so long. And the leader who is responsible for helping to shape or shift it needs to look for signs of progress over looking for the perfection or the end result. Moving from a country role to a multi-country role, like a regional role or a hub role, Becky explains the differences between leading an intact team and why sometimes having a working group structure is far more effective when you're working across different markets. Finally, Becky shares with us an extraordinary insight based on her improvisation theatre background when we discuss imposter syndrome. And she shares with us the idea that letting the character emerge can be a far more useful notion than trying to quash imposter syndrome. In her case, it taught her to listen far deeply. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. We shall never surrender. And they call me for advice and I say, just remember, like go in with humility. Just remember that half the people are going to be excited you're there and the other half are going to look at you and think in their head, I can hold my breath longer than you're going to be here. <laughs> and in fact, some of that is true. So it changes your perspective about what is the legacy that you're helping the organization. Welcome to The Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high-performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words, what is their leadership diet? Welcome, Becky, to this episode of The Leadership Diet. Thank you. It's great to be here. All the way from Indianapolis in the USA. So glad to have you here. When I first met you, you had just arrived into Australia. And I think from memory, it was your first time in an affiliate role as a GM of an affiliate of a multinational. Let's talk about that transition going from leading in a U.S. headquarter-based city to suddenly the other part of the world and taking on that role. Yes, it was a transition. Um, and it was fantastic, actually, uh, because I learned so much uh, about myself. So I was leading in the U.S. Um, for a U.S.-based company and leading really probably one of the largest business units that we had in the U.S. at the time uh, and had the opportunity to take the role in Australia, which was a smaller, much smaller role. Um, and I would I would articulate it as kind of still a significant role, but maybe significant with a little s versus significant with a large s when you look at the size, the scope and the um, you know, the overall revenue contribution of the U.S. versus versus Australia. Um, but that was my first opportunity to think about leading broadly and really from end to end, if you will, um, as the country goes with regard to the to our product portfolio and our presence in Australia. And that was new to me. Do you remember the day you arrived with your family and, and what was that like? As a, I mean, imagine it's, it feels like an adventure, but it's also scary when you're moving across the world with a young family. Yes, it was. Uh, it was exciting. And my husband and I are adventurers. And I tell people who are thinking about expat or different country roles to really reflect to make sure they think of it as an adventure, not as a, um, a not a favor, but not as a um, kind of requisite of the job. 
those roles are demanding and living in a new country is exhausting. So you have to find energy in that act alone in living in a new country. Otherwise, I think it's really tough. I think you count the days until you go back home and it's hard for both um, your colleagues and your family. That's really interesting you say that because uh, I think most people who have not done expat roles would assume, hey, this is uh, <laughs> it's exciting. You know, I, I, I get to live in another country. Uh, a lot of times I got my house and cars and all that kind of stuff paid for by the organization. Yeah, what you just said is there's another side to the story and, and it requires a mm-hmm. lot of intentional effort. Yes. And everything takes longer. You know, you lose your support network. Um, and so we were a family of four, two young kids. Uh, and move into Australia. So you you figure out how to live differently as a family. And for us, it, it was a joy. Like we spent a, a lot of time together and we really bonded in a different way. And I saw the kids bond in a different way. I remember the first time they wanted, uh, we were down at the beach and they wanted their own ice cream cones. So I gave them money and they looked at me and they're like, we don't know what this is, right? This is all new money. <laughs> yes, right. I was like, well, if you, if you want an ice cream cone, you're going to have to go work together. You're going to have to go and figure it out and, and make sure they give you the right change. And, and it was really um, a moment for both of us just to say, boy, the world is different. And yeah. it's going to require a lot of um, cooperation and energy to make it work. I think that story reflects a lot of things about the relationship between Australia and America in that, you know, it's a dollar bill and same, you have a dollar mm-hmm. bill in the US, obviously, mm-hmm. but, uh, but there's a whole lot of different stories beneath that. And so you, ha- you have to yes. go and figure it out. Yes. Yeah. So you stepped into the, the role as, as GM of the affiliate for this uh, US company where you'd been for many, many years. Mm-hmm. What were your early days like in that role? You know, I spent quite a bit of time trying to, uh, you know, engage and build trust with the lead team and understand kind of where the state of the business was. And of course, that's normal. I think anybody who's had any type of um, experience would would do the same uh, and um, use time to kind of listen and learn. What I underestimated when I came into the affiliate was kind of what they needed from me versus maybe what I needed from them. And when I went down, my mentor told me on one of our last conversations, he said, Becky, he goes, you'll be, you're, you're going to be great for the organization because they need a leader. I didn't know what that meant. I was like, okay, you know, I, they need, they need someone to, to run the business. But when I got down to Australia and uh, began to get to know the organization, I began to understand more what he meant by a leader. You know, there's a big difference between leading and managing. Um, I needed to manage the business for sure. We had commitments to to the corporate uh, organization in terms of sales and revenue, uh, as well as commitment to the, to our, um, to the country uh, authorities as well. But the leadership part, it didn't hit me initially, which is they needed a vision. They needed confidence. And they needed someone who could give a steadfast path forward about what we were going to do and how we were going to do it together, which is different than managing. I mean, leading, as you know, is just different than managing. That probably surprised me because when you work in a large affiliate or at the corporate headquarters, there's a lot of people leading. So you don't, you, it doesn't necessarily fall all on your shoulders, yeah. but it did on mine. And I didn't really appreciate that probably as quickly as, as I could have. 
I've seen that happen many times. We have someone who um, is based in headquarters and, and is, has either a national role or sometimes a global um, you know, role based out of headquarters and then take on their first time role as an affiliate or a GM or a vice president of, an, of a market. And for them, they suddenly realize there's no one around me in these corridors mm-hmm. who's got the same understanding as I do. Oh dear, mm-hmm. I've got Avid. <laughs> and then it's a yeah, real shock, yeah. isn't it? Because it, mm-hmm. it does force you to dig deep and go, okay, I am now setting the vision within the perimeters of the global stuff, but I'm still setting yeah, the vision. Sure. Uh, and right. I, I think you're right. It, it tests courage. It tests, it tests your leadership. Do, Absolutely. Do you remember how you stepped into that and then how you went about realizing, okay, I now got to do this to the point of mm-hmm. it's done. What, what, what was that story mm-hmm. like for you? You know, I think um, I, I began to realize that there was this gap um, in the organization and the previous GM that was there, um, I don't think um, had done a lot of leading himself. And maybe that's why they switched him out and pulled me in quite suddenly. So the organization, I think, when there was this sudden move, felt like, um, felt more in a position of, okay, like ready, like, okay, Becky, take us, take us. And I didn't take them. I just kind of came in and I think in their eyes, I was more managing than leading. When I realized that for myself, um, it was very empowering, a little bit scary, but a very empowering. And I would go home every night and my commute back to, to my house from the office saying to myself, like, what it feels like to work at this company in Australia is up to me and my team. And we as leaders, or as the senior um, executives of the organization, we cast the shadow that then defines the culture for our organization. And what am I doing to drive that to a place that one, makes people want to work there, and then two, drives great business results. Once I figured that out, then um, building that plan together, it wasn't my plan, it was our plan. Building that plan together um, became the obvious um, chore ahead of us. It wasn't a chore, but the obvious um, mission in front of us. Um, and from there, we took off. But I had to get there first my, my, in my own head. So let's double down what you just said. You, you used your commute um, home at the end of the day to ask yourself mm-hmm. questions, reflective type questions. Mm-hmm. And once you got to yeah. the answers for those, that gave you a sense of confidence or, or, or a pathway mm-hmm. forward to what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I might have shared this with you a number of years ago in, in some conversation we had along the way, a, a research study called The Daily Habits of Effective Leaders that was done in Australia. And one of the mm-hmm. traits of leaders who were deemed to be hyper-effective was the evening reflective process they had on the way home, uh, looking yes. at how had they shown up that day mm-hmm. and what ne- what is required of them the next day or the next month or next six months. Yeah. So it sounds like you were in the process of asking yourself that, what's required of me and us to lead this affiliate? Yeah, and I began to ask, so I did that in the US as well, but I began to ask first, like when I engaged today, did I improve like the culture? Did I improve people's belief in the mission? And did I, did I improve their belief in their ability to do their jobs? Which is something I um, obviously worked on with my team in the US, but it wasn't as top of mind as it was in Australia. And part of that comes from the humility of knowing that expat rotations come and go, right? And people um, want to work for someone who is inspiring and they get along with. But at the end of the day, I, and this is what I tell uh, folks that are taking on their expat assignments, 
and they call me for advice. And I say, just remember, like go in with humility. Just remember that half the people are going to be excited you're there. And the other half are going to look at you and think in their head, I can hold my breath longer than you're going to be here. <laughs> and in fact, some of that is true. So it changes your perspective about what is the legacy that you're helping the organization build, not necessarily for me as a person, or what can I tick off in my resume based on this assignment, but because the legacy that you live is lives in the people that stay. Yeah. I remember talking to an executive assistant who, who had um, supported um, expat GMs once and they said to me, Paddy, I've, I've done six GMs now. I've got two more to train in before I retire. Yeah. <laughs> and, yes, and, and, yes, and her view yes. was every four years, someone comes along and I train them up and I send them on the way before the next one comes along. Yes. Yeah. So yes. You're, you're absolutely right. Starting with humility is a, is a great starting point. This, this idea of being comfortable in your skin as a leader uh, and, 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 and learning to understand who I am and what my role is and how I, how I mesh that together. It sounds like the reflective process you use for you allows you to get very comfortable in your skin as a human being yeah. and as a leader. Is that yeah. true? And if so, yes. tell us more about that. Yes, absolutely. I, and I think that for me personally has always been important for me because I think it um, drives or it doesn't drive it, but maybe it opens up or allows the authenticity in a relationship and the trust in a relationship to, to, to become established. One of the things though, that I have reflected on since I've had these role changes, significant role changes is really making sure I'm comfortable in my own skin in the role that I'm in. Um, and, um, making sure that I understand what, what role I am to play and that, um, I'm fully like in my own head all in. So I think when I went to Australia coming out again from the corporate headquarters, you know, they needed a leader and I was a leader for sure, but I wasn't, I never needed to be the leader. And in Australia, they needed uh, the leader. There was no one um, kind of coming behind me. I wasn't on the tail end of a big corporate town hall. I was the town hall. So I needed to make sure I was okay. Um, and Not okay, but make sure I was ready to be that leader when I showed up at the office. Even though sometimes you show up maybe in, for a meeting or in, a, in different capacities and you have a little bit of imposter syndrome, but it is important that you're, doesn't mean that you're going to be great at the role, but that you have, you have, um, you're comfortable with it and you've accepted it because uh, no one else is going to be that leader in Australia except the GM. You said a few things that are really fascinating there. I reckon we could have a whole new podcast just on that last five minutes. <laughs> but um, I want to come back to imposter syndrome in, in, in a second. But uh, what I think what you said is really profound. You've got to be comfortable in your skin in this role because each role requires mm -hmm. something different of you. And that doesn't yeah. mean you're being more or less authentic. It just means I'm shaping myself to the role that's required of me. And I'm very comfortable with who I am as a human being. I think that's a profound learning. And I see a lot of leaders struggle with as they move roles and the role requires something else that they haven't done before. They struggle with, oh, that means I'm no longer authentic. And that's, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. It's actually yeah. the role is very, mm -hmm. very different. And you know, you've got to stretch mm -hmm. yourself to it. 
Oh, thank you for sharing that. that. That's quite profound what you share there. Imposter syndrome. I, uh, you know, if given the roles you've had and the role that you're about to move to, I would imagine that you are far from someone who's got imposter syndrome. You're extraordinarily confident, but the way you're laughing at me at the screen now to suggest maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> what, what, Every what? single day. So it used to show up. It used to show up in um, doubting myself. Um, waiting and probably being one of the last to offer insights or opinions. Uh, I think it as well, if I, if I can be honest with myself, I don't, I don't think I probably early on in, in my career fought for things as hard as I should have uh, when I was passionate about them. Um, I always figured someone else must have an insight that's better than mine. And that's why we're making a different decision or that's why they don't, they're not agreeing with my position. But as I've gotten uh, more experience, and, and I do think a little bit older, um, I've harnessed, it's still there for sure, but I've harnessed it in a different way. You know, there's this, this concept in leadership and, and in improv, and you know, I have an improv background, which is about like, let the character be there, but just manage the character, right? Just don't let the character kind of be whimsy and flit and flat all over the stage. You got to let the character be there, but manage it. So in a sense, that's what I've done with my imposter syndrome. It's like it allows me to pause and reflect and be humble and to listen hard just to make sure I'm not missing something. But I don't let it get I don't let it carry me away anymore and create kind of the self-talk around someone must be smarter than me in the room. Uh, someone has more experience. And so they see the situation more clearly than I. Um, so it's about for me kind of harnessing that energy to enable me to um, still grow and be confident as a leader, but um, making sure I'm listening hard and learning, always learning. Did you give that character a name or a persona? Does it matter of interest? You did yeah. not. I did not, but maybe I should have not <laughs> said that. <laughs> I wonder what you'd call it now. <laughs> But they, they, you know, what's lovely about what you said there is there's, there's lots of, um, I would say, less than useful books written about how do you get rid of that imposter syndrome. And, and I don't think it's possible. But what I love about you is yeah. you just said, well, it's a character. Let the character be there and learn from the character. So it's forced you to listen mm-hmm. deeper. And, and, to, and I would imagine then that's taught you to listen for the nuggets that other people aren't hearing or, or whatever, which mm-hmm. wisdom then emerges from that. Yeah. So it's an understanding yeah. that it's there to serve you, not, not getting in your way. Mm-hmm. So you, you you stepped in, you set a vision, you, you harnessed the team, you you got comfortable in your own skin. What was your experience leading the affiliate over the, the the number of years you were there? Well, it was you know it's probably when I think back to some of the lessons, it was like all the business books and you know business school classes all wrapped up into one. Like it was a tremendous learning opportunity, both from the business, just understanding as you know I said before the end to end aspects of the business that in a, a smaller role and a bigger, you know, the corporate headquarters, I would have never had exposure to. Um, I also learned uh, uh, more about leadership and just how long it takes to shift culture, <clears throat> but how important it is. And no matter um, how good you are at managing, if you set a vision and you turn around, there's no one following you you're not going to be able to achieve what you want to achieve or what the organization sent me down there to achieve. Um, So that learning has enabled me as I've moved into new roles, as well as mentor coach others to help people understand, you know, culture is informed overnight, good or bad. 
So if you're trying to shift it, it's going to take some time. It also means that when, you know, things go in the shitter for one reason or another, right? Like the business, something happens in the business or something happens with a leader that maybe isn't, you know, beholden of the, of the company, you know, ideals that culture is resilient as well, right? It doesn't die overnight either, or, or, you know, it's completely implode. Um, But that required patience and quite a bit of discipline to stay on, um, stay on task. And just because you didn't see things changing immediately, not to abandon ship or keep course correcting, because sometimes it just takes a bit of time to kind of steer the ship in a different direction. I would imagine then, it, uh, given that culture does take a time, and most people, you know, most experts would suggest it's two to four years before you really see a massive transformation. As the leader who's there, and you know you're going to be there for a finite time, as in, let's say, a three-year time frame before the next, as you said, the next rotation comes along, mm-hmm. you've got to start looking for signs that you're making progress as opposed to waiting for the end result, because the end result may happen after you've left. Like it's, yes. it's an ongoing piece. Yes. So, so do you find that you're, you're looking for signs of progress uh, in the business or in relationships or in, in, in metrics or something like that? For sure. There were a couple of things I learned um, about making progress. One is I could only be so patient with my own lead team mm-hmm. uh, if my own lead team didn't believe where we were going. And so because of that, I moved on and 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 changed some of the lead team, um, which was hard. Um, you know, whenever a leader comes, you know, drops into a country or drops into a, a division and starts changing the lead team, people get a bit nervous. But I couldn't tolerate uh, kind of mediocrity or moody, moodiness. That's probably not the right word, but I couldn't tolerate if people weren't all in on the, on the journey that we committed to as a lead team. Cause to say one thing and do another, like your culture will never change, right? Yeah. Whether you're, you know, a sports team or a family or an organization business. Um, but there were other signs of, of progress that I looked for, which was um, a bit about how is the organization working together and engaging with one another, but not at my level, because I'm, that's like, I, I don't, you don't control it, but I influence that the most. What I wanted to know is at levels um, uh, under the lead team and in functions, not directly kind of represented on the lead team were the, was the culture changing there? And were those organizations starting to operate differently? A big part of our cultural journey was to build confidence as all as well as take risks and find new ways to to do business. We were a small affiliate, so we needed to do things differently. We didn't have big operating budgets or a lot of a lot of um, HR resources headcount. So we needed to do things differently. So that those were some of the things I was looking for. Even if the experiments failed, that was all right. But as long as people started to have the confidence and the ambition and the creativity to try new things, that was a good signal for me. Yeah. Well, the organization had confidence in you because after the Australian um, experiment, they shipped you over to the yeah. UK and you, you took yes. on the president of the UK and the Nordics, uh, which is an interesting mixture mm-hmm. of markets from you know very, one very, very big, large, mature market to many mm-hmm. smaller markets. Mm-hmm. What was that like from a business perspective, changing from being a single country leader to a, a multi-country leader of other leaders? Yeah. Totally missed it when I went in that I was making a transition from being really a country president to a regional president. So I went in that job and I was thinking about it two 
too much the way I had done the Australia job. So we made mistakes, Pod. We that first year, like the UK was running well. Um, we had a little bit of slippage in Ireland and in the four Nordic countries. We we just weren't made, making our plans. We weren't getting products approved. And I own that because I was managing sameness, not difference. So, so it's a big learning for me. One I reflected on my commute home. <laughs> <laughs> so you were driving from Copenhagen to London every night. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't driving far enough. I would have reflected faster. Now, uh, I love what you just said. I, I was managing sameness, not not differences or nuances, and mm-hmm. and I mean, as well as having different languages across the Nordics, you've got extraordinary different mm-hmm. histories and cultures. And as I can understand the temptation to bring everyone together into the same tent and, and, and let's all lead together. But mm-hmm. what's the advantage of managing for differences in that kind of relationship versus when you're in, in a single country, like say you, England, you're managing for same. Can, yeah. can you explain to us what, why yeah. that's so different? The healthcare systems are so different and what what is required for success in each of the countries is different, both in the way that we are structured and the way uh, that we engage with the governments for reimbursement. I'm not talking about like whether a brand team wants to use blue in the UK and they want to use green in Sweden. That That's like marketing preference. And from that perspective, I didn't allow like a lot of difference. It's like we were, um, some of that's just preference. Like I want to do do it my way. My country is different. Every Every country leader will will hear that or geography leader will hear that. I'm more talking about actually the how the external environment is different and how healthcare is delivered. When we started, uh, or when I started in the UK, the UK was um, the biggest country. And so everything was done the UK way. And then we then kind of deviated, if you will, but not to a great extent for the other countries. What I found is that I needed to do my best not to start with the UK way, but but more or less kind of parallel process where I could across all of the countries and then allow differences for where, you know, where they needed to be made. One very specific change I needed to make was most of our leadership roles were UK based. But if we were really going to operate as a hub, I needed strong leadership roles in Sweden and Norway, uh, Finland, Denmark. So we began to, we still wanted to hub some of the work that we did because again, we were smaller, these, you know, collective smaller countries. We couldn't staff um, a full infrastructure in some of the smaller countries, but, but it couldn't all just be the UK way. And then, and then, you know, doled out, if you will. So like, for instance, we shifted our set national, our hub national sales director to a Sweden uh, role. Um, and we moved some of the marketing to uh, outside of the UK to other roles. It balanced our conversation better in the UK office because it wasn't always about us. Yes, I imagine. Right. I actually also thought maybe I shouldn't be in the UK office. Like there's too many of us just worried about us. Uh, and we weren't um, thinking through how different the, each of the geographies were. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Leadership Diet. Feel free to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast player you are listening to this on. Reviews on iTunes and Spotify are greatly appreciated. 
I'm wondering, um, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm reaching too far here with my assumption, but I'm wondering, did the experience of working outside of the US headquarters when you came to Australia give you a line of sight of us and them, them being headquarters and they don't understand us, mm-hmm. whoever us is? Mm-hmm. When you went to the UK, you, you were effectively back in the European headquarters, for the want of a better phrase. Mm-hmm. Did, did, did that insight mm-hmm. help you land at a decision to let's expand our borders from London to various parts of the, of, of mm-hmm. the hub? Yes. And working on both sides also gave me more insight into what was a preference versus a difference that we really needed to manage. Um, And and we were able to get to those differences, like articulate those differences pretty quickly. And when we did that, then the other shift I needed to make was change how change my governance. The hub, my, my regional role, that was more work group than team. And why was I forcing everyone to try and act like a team? Because I think, quite frankly, it was exhausting to them and, and fake, right? Yeah. But when we are, were able to identify very specifically what was it that was different and what did we um, need to pay attention to that was different, then we can shift the government, then we shifted the governance, which was my job, right? To shift the governance to allow for that and actually enable some of those countries to move much faster than. Because before they would just need to wait until it was done in the UK and then kind of take the scraps off the table. So it was a big shift in how we worked. So the governance in the, in this case, are you, are you meaning governance looking at the way you met, the the, the agendas of your meetings, the decision-making yes. type governance as opposed to regulatory? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Like how, yeah, how decisions were made, where work got done and who was accountable for, you know, to deliver those. I'm, I'm in a conversation right now uh, with a few folks in, in Australia around the whole notion of team development uh, at its fundamental. And I keep landing back at some of those structural conversations on, you know, to what degree are we a team or need to be a team coupled with the governance structures like you just referred to. Whilst they sound boring, they're still fundamentally important. And without those teams get really lost. Yeah. It sounds like you, yeah. you, you're able to use that notion of what do we need versus what do we, what do we prefer and figure out a, yeah. a, a way to suit the, the environment you're in. Yes. Yes. And I think governance is tricky and I don't think I'm that great at it. And I go into Every team, and I say that out loud because we need to iterate on the governance all the time. Too much governance, um, even though people may prefer to work in more of a laissez-faire environment, I think it's slow because you're not all rowing the boat uh, at the same pace and in the same direction. Um, Too much governance, though, is like micromanaging. So it is tricky to get it right. But when you can get it right, you, what I've observed with my teams is that everybody is so invested, right? A little bit of the essentialism in there. Like everybody knows what everybody else is trying to deliver and they're so invested in each other's success um, that it is, um, it's like the impact is, is exponential yeah. uh, and the speed increases quite a bit. Um, but it is not sexy and it's, and it's quite boring. And for me, it's hard. And it also sounds like the way you describe it, it doesn't mean you all have to be an intact, interdependent team at all times is actually no. the opposite is mm-hmm. actually very liberating sometimes, as long as we understand mm-hmm. how to, to lead for that. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So when you look back now on, on that experience, how did, how do you think you grew up as a leader and I grew up, I don't mean that in any sense of maturity, but in terms of overall yeah. capability, what were the, the biggest developments for you in that whole experience? You know, that when I think about my own leadership development, that was one where I needed to, in a very, uh, probably in a more sophisticated way, um, lead the team uh, and drive more ambition. 
into the team, there was a mindset of kind of our destiny is due to the market that we're in. Like we, um, I, I, you know, for every time someone said to me, Becky, Becky, this is just the way it is in the UK, right? Or this is just the way it is in Sweden. And, and some of that's for, for sure true, right? But then there's also with, within the market that we're in, how do we drive more value? How do we become more relevant? How do we work differently with payers to, um, or the, in this case, the governments um, to get the right pricing reimbursement? How do we work differently with our corporate structure to get the right pricing approvals. Um, so it was it was a good learning for me because you need to bring people along and you need people to believe, not just when Becky says it on stage, hey, we're going to um, try and get really excited about this product launch. I needed people really to be excited about the, yeah. the product launch. And for me, that was that it, across a broader organization and not in as we said before, in an organization that doesn't all sit in one place. For me, that was a new leadership challenge. It sounds like it's a, it's a great combination of in Australia, you, you, you had the, you had to get really close to the, a, a smaller affiliate and set the vision because yeah. no one else was going to. And then in this other role, there was, there was still that, but it was across multiple markets and you had all of this innovation, agility, strategic change needed as well. And without both together, yeah. it, it, it may not have happened. Yes. Yes. It definitely forced me to um, think more like an executive because the, although I was doing that in Australia, but you have to do it even more so because there just aren't enough hours of the day to be, you know, involved in every business case and every uh, government meeting and every decision to be made. So it was, I needed to figure out where, where do they meet Becky? And then where can I empower folks to run faster? That um, habit you have, um, which you've just alluded to just now, and you did earlier on to of what is needed of me, where do I, where, how do yeah. I serve best? That seems to be a, a guiding question that you, you've been using in your different roles. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it, it also sounds like it serves up different answers at different times of your career and life, which yeah. is probably part of your experience. Do, do you still use that kind of navigation for yourself today? For sure. Like, um, it's a bit of the kind of the essentialism content, right? The topic there of, of what is it that only I can do? What, what is it that only I can deliver or, or what is needed that I'm in the best position to deliver and making sure, and that doesn't mean that's the only thing I do all day, right? But yeah. making sure that that is like number one or two on my list. And I use it like even with my family and as my kids get older and we are navigating teenage years, which most of the time means mom shouldn't be involved <laughs> um, in their eyes, but just trying to figure out like, what is it that yeah. is uniquely needs to be uniquely done by Becky. And I ask folks on my team to, to articulate that and share it out loud so that we all understand, you know, I had a lead lead team meeting with my team here in the U.S. So I've come back into the U.S. and we were talking about what is it that we do? Like, why do we exist as a team? And we started out with, um, and I let, you know, the whole team was engaged in the conversation, but I had sales, I had marketing, I had market access, uh, and then, you know, like HR and a COO, kind of the staff roles. And at first it was like, deliver sales. And then it was, we need to um, meet our plan commitments. You know, we need to serve patients. We need, and not, it's not that any of those were wrong, but I said to the team, I said, but 
because none of us like sell directly to a doctor. Like not one of us like creates a script sale, right? What is it that we need to do that no one else in the organization can do, but they must, you know, they're relying on us to do it. And we ended up with our kind of our little like rally cry. It wasn't like a mission vision type discussion, but our rally cry was our job was to create clarity and um, communicate effectively when decisions have been made. Full stop. And if we can do that as a lead team, now that's not the only thing we do, right? We're going to do a whole lot. We're going to do all that other stuff too. meet with customers and make sure the product is, is, is patient focused, all of that. But us as individuals, when we wake up every day, we need to make that commitment to each other that we're going to deliver that for the broader organization. Um, So that's, you know, I use that in my own, in my own thinking, but then also with my teams to make sure that we're really clear because when the laundry list of things that we think we do gets really, really long, I think maybe we've missed the mark. Yeah, exactly right. So that get right back up to the most important thing. So give clarity and communicate when decisions have been made. Mm-hmm. How how has that served you in your recent experience in the U.S. in terms of the business unit you're living there? I think really well. Mm-hmm. Now it sounds so simple, and maybe people that are listening are like, "Duh," but it if every day you wake up and you make sure, and we were holding each other accountable, and when something would start to wobble, we only had ourselves to to blame right like well we made this decision we agreed on like even a brand strategy we've agreed on this brand strategy we've agreed on this prioritization of the portfolio and if someone is working on something that doesn't ladder up to those it's on us because we obviously weren't clear enough and um you know hadn't effectively communicated when decisions are made so we you know, we, we removed a lot of projects, which lightened the load and allowed us to, people didn't necessarily work less hard, but we were putting our energies into the one or two things on our, our priority list instead of number five or six. All the revisiting of decisions stopped because that was on us. Like if we were re like debating a decision, it means we weren't clear enough um, or, or, you know, didn't define the decision rights or the decision made. So I think we moved much faster, Pod, after we aligned on what is it that we do that no one else can do for us. I I love the simplicity of that. And and I I genuinely, when I say I love it, I really do, because it's the simplicity on the other side of complexity, as in it's not simplicity for the sake of you. You, You've gone through a whole lot of analysis, you've figured out a whole lot of things, and you arrived at, if we we focus on this, everything else will be sorted relatively easy. And all of of the work I've done with leadership teams over 20 years now, the two most common complaints from organizations who look up to the leadership team are, we don't know what they want us to do, and they don't tell us anything. So you've just said, let's address with clarity, let's address with communication, you've solved for that straight away. Um, so well done. And, and I can really understand why that has led you and your teams to the success you've had most recently in, in, in your role in the US. Let's change this topic completely. I, I have a vague memory once of you telling me a story about um, your grandmother and Wisconsin Lakes and, and how she was a big influence on you. You know, my grandmother was a huge influence on me. And she was a feminist and activist uh, and was the one that taught me to always do the right thing, whether people are watching or not. 
you know, whether you get credit for it or not, or whether it might hurt you um, to do the right thing. And she was a real advocate here in the United States for uh, racial equality and economic equality. So I aspired to kind of try and have the type of impact she had and um, kind of live in her shadow to be good enough to live in her shadow. And we were up at the lake uh, once and I was really struggling uh, through a role um, learning. You learn when you struggle, but you hate it that you have to struggle to learn, but you really do sometimes, right? So I'm in the middle of one of those um, learning moments and she saw it wearing on me. I think I probably just had one of my babies. Um, so I had really young kids and she and I were up at the lake, just us together with the baby. And I remember her saying, you know, Becky, you don't have to always take the big jobs and you don't always have to be the leader uh, and, you know, wrap your arms around, whether it's the family or your organization uh, or the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, and it was really a very moving moment because I think she was trying to let me off the hook, if you will, of, of that um, obligation I felt to live well in her shadow. Um, but it was also a really good conversation about what it feels like when you're learning and what it feels like when you're doing good work. And mm -hmm. that sometimes it feels exactly the way I was feeling. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a reminder of the purpose in that journey. What would she be thinking today of, of where you landed in the various roles you've landed and the, indeed the role you're about to move to in a few, in a few weeks? I think she'd be very proud. I think she um, was one that always said like, Becky, just go do what you want to do it and do it in your own way. And, you know, initially that didn't mean a lot to me, but then as I became more and more senior in my company or engaging at a more senior level, whether it is kind of in a, in a government perspective or in the business world, um, it got harder and harder to kind of do it my way because I felt like I was so different than everyone else, not just because I was a female leader, but because my style is so different. So um, that, you know, her advice to me to, to go and go strong, but do it your own way mm -hmm. has been um, kind of a, a rally cry for me. And I think she'd be proud I'm figuring out a way to do it. I haven't, I haven't totally turned off that crazy uh, kid that I was long, long time ago. <laughs> and I hope you never do. <laughs> Life would be boring if you did that. <laughs> You're about to change again. You're heading back on the trail. You're heading over to uh, Denmark to take on an exciting mm -hmm. new role, executive vice president uh, for uh, Leo. Mm -hmm. What are you hoping to bring with you in, into that new experience? So I'm hoping to bring, you know, a lot of these leadership lessons that I've had and not saying that it's going to be the same. Um, sometimes when you move into a new role, you get so amped up about having impact and um, making sure people are glad they hired you that it can actually be more disruptive. So the more confidence I, I have and the more I can manage my imposter syndrome, which I'm going to get a name for her. Um, <laughs> but that enables me, I think, to enter in a good, in a good place. I also, you know, I can't downplay the importance of learning all that I did about the, about the different markets and how to create value in different markets that will be invaluable as I move into a global role. Um, so that will be really, really, what did I say, valuable, important. 
What will be new for me is sitting on the executive team. Uh, and again, you know, being an, um, having to figure out what, what is that role that I need to play there? Like as we talked earlier, as we started the conversation, what is the role I need to play there and figuring that out so that I can do it well. And of course you're moving to a new organization because you, 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 you've, you've been in one organization for two decades. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. there's a whole lot of new learning in terms of, of new people and new ways of doing business as well. Very, very Definitely. exciting. Well, I'm very excited for you and the family to be moving across there again on a, on a whole new adventure. Bringing, uh, bringing our, our conversation to, to a close, I've, I've got two last questions for you, Becky, which I ask everybody. So excuse me for being okay. obvious. Mm-hmm. One is, what is your favorite song or favorite band? Oh, gosh. We have music going all the time in our house. So we do love music, but I probably have to harken back to like a college band, which is going to date me, but like, uh, something like, um, you two or you speak in uh, my language. Like the Blowfish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can't take that out of me. That's right. Those are like some of the first concerts I went to. That's probably why I always think about them like that. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll, uh, I'll find some links um, to uh, some Hooting Bluefish songs and have it in, in our show notes here. And uh, <laughs> the, the, the the last question for you, given everything we've talked about, everything that you have accumulated through experience that you have, what would you be now telling the 35-year-old version of yourself? To be more confident, to remain humble, because um, you should never stop learning. Um, but to be more confident in, in my ideas or my approach to solving problems. I think I, again, took the back seat or, um, sat in the back row for too long. Um, now I love where I am right now. It's not like I look back and be like, I could be the president of a company right now. That's not the way I think about it. I think about, could I have had more impact and led stronger for the people that I worked with, for the teams I had a privilege of being part of? Could I have done more for them? If I had uh, been more confident. Well, I'm excited for the folks to, who are about to inherit a new leader uh, when you move across to, to Denmark and around the world. Maybe you should do a future podcast with one of them. They can tell you what it was like. <laughs> I might hold you to that. <laughs> Becky, it's been, it's been a pleasure. I, I love all the insights that you've shared and the wisdom you've distilled in, in, in a very short period of time. Uh, wish you and the family all of the best on your new adventure Thank and uh, can't wait to catch up again and, and hear how that goes. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Pod. Let's talk about what we got from that conversation. For me, I certainly picked up lots of ideas in this conversation with Becky. The first one that struck me is her ongoing pattern of daily reflection on the way home from work at the end of the day. And the regular asking of herself some key questions allows her to stay on track and stay aware of her own impact. On the website that this podcast is linked to, there is a white paper called The Daily Habits of Exceptional Leaders based on a research study done a couple of years ago. For anyone interested in more questions and and the ideas that Becky used for herself, go to that white paper. It might be useful for you. The second thing that struck me was this idea of start with humility. And 
In my career, I've seen far too many leaders rush into a new role and rush to make their mark or to even justify their hiring, and in doing so, regularly annoy people or get people offside by simple habits of how often they refer back to their old organization and how great it was compared to where they are now, or rushing to embrace the future while not honoring the past. And of course, the team that they just inherited created the past. So inadvertently, they are creating hostility amongst their team by doing that. So starting with humility is a really strong, positive, and mindful way of taking a new role. The third thing that struck me with Becky is being comfortable in her own skin in this role, whatever the role is that she is about to go into or has just started. One question I often ask leaders when they are transitioning to a new role is to get really clear of the following two questions. What does this role require of me? And what does this role require of me that I've never done before? Simple pair of questions to get you hyper alert on what the role is requiring of you and how do you transition into those needs quickly as opposed to doing your old role in a new title. The idea of imposter syndrome, this is not new. This is probably the most frequent conversation I've ever had with all the leaders I've worked with over the years. Becky brought to this topic is the idea of improvisation theatre and how characters emerge in improv theatre. And her comment was, let the character emerge. Don't necessarily let it take over the script, but let it emerge. And characters often teach us things. Of course, the idea of imposter syndrome is our ego often seeks to defend us. And Becky's wisdom that we learned from her was her imposter syndrome, her character that was sitting there, taught her to listen deeper. And over time, that led her to become more strategic and and wise. So let the character emerge. Don't try to quash it. And the last thing I took from this conversation is the idea of different types of teams and the learning that Becky shared with when she moved from Australia into a wider role in the UK and the Nordic countries. Her learning was she was trying to run the team in the same way as if she ran an intact country team. And her learning over time was different teams need different types of agendas, different types of structures, different types of ways of meeting and different types of governance. So if you are a leader, the question I'd be encouraging you to think about at the moment is when you think of the team that you are leading, are you defaulting to a traditional type of structure or to the one you inherited just because it was there? And if so, just think about what does the environment actually need and then therefore structure your team accordingly. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Leadership Diet. We hope you enjoyed it. Head over to theleadershipdiet.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, to our blog, retrieve a whole range of resources that we talk about in each episode. And if you are visual, a bit like myself, there are a range of videos sitting in our YouTube channel that you might find helpful. If you're enjoying all this, a review on iTunes or Spotify would be much appreciated. See you next time.